Romans chapter 3. Hopefully you're getting a handout. Don't get scared when you look at the handout. Um, I do hope you came caffeinated this morning. Um, If you are one of those folks that does not need caffeine to produce mental capacity, then uh, you have a mind that my feeble mind cannot even imagine. So uh, however you bring about mental faculties, I hope that you will stir those this morning. We're going to need them as we look at God's Word together in Romans chapter, end of chapter 2 and chapter 3. To that end, let me read for us. I'm not going to read the entire text. We're going to walk through it. Um, We're going to, God willing, get all the way down through uh, uh, 20, uh, at least uh, 24, sorry, 21 of Romans 3. But let me read for us chapter 2, 28 and 29. It says, Romans chapter 2, 28 and 29. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Let me pray for us. Father, help us this morning to see your word as clear as it is here. And thank you that it is as clear as it is here. You have been very careful that all parts of the gospel are protected in giving us the book of Romans. And you protect us here from the desire to add to the gospel, the desire to think our efforts bring about our salvation in any way. You stand to literally shut the mouths of all men who would ever dare to praise themselves for any effort toward salvation. I just pray that that would be clearly articulated. And I pray it would be loved among us. I pray that we would praise you even more. That your mercy is more than our abundant sin. And then, Father, I pray that you would excite us more about the gospel. That's how we go and tell. That's how we share. Because we see this truth clearer, we understand it deeper, and we have a desire to explain it to those that we love. And so, Father, I pray that you would give us help this morning in your word, by your spirit. In him we trust. Amen. Last week, as Pastor Mark was preaching there in Romans chapter 2, I was following throughout, was enjoying it. But as he was closing out the chapter, he started to get a little bit worked up. Um, And I was intrigued because I'm familiar with chapter 2, and I was familiar with the end of it, and appreciated it. But to be quite honest, I I didn't expect that to exercise him so. Um, So... I got to tell you though, I'm very glad it did because as he got more exercise, I started looking at it more. Incredibly helpful. Uh, To be quite honest, I think I would have botched this sermon had it not been for that. Um, And 
it revealed to me just a major blind spot about what's going on in Romans 2 and Romans 3. Um, so uh, let, me, let me share with you what he shared with us, and it really is the springboard for the whole rest of the sermon. Um, verse 28 of chapter 2, For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly in circumcision, Got to hear this. Circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from God, from, uh, from man, but from God. His praise is not from man, but from God. These verses, in particular verse 29, are head-turning and astonishing, especially to a Jewish audience. In particular, two phrases by the Spirit, and His praise is not from man, but from God. The notion that law-keeping could not be a mere external exercise, that's nothing new. That's all across the Old Testament. The prophets spend a lot of effort explaining that it's not merely outward. But for Paul to suggest that circumcision is a spiritual reality and comes about not from law-keeping, oh, now, no, wait a second. It's a whole different matter. As Pastor Mark pointed out, if, if you are a Jew, circumcision means a lot of things. <laughs> but it is not a matter of the heart. It was not performed by the Spirit. And it is not, namely, an inward reality. I mean, just think about that claim being made by Paul to a Jewish audience trying to convince them what circumcision is. It's spiritual? Oh, it doesn't seem like it. It is a part of the heart? I oh, don't think so. And it's inward? Ah, not, nope, that's not it, right? That was the claim Paul was making. Circumcision for Jews is a huge deal. It was the mark that they were saved from the wrath of God that was real and it is coming to the world. Like the houses marked by the blood uh, painted on the doorpost saved the inhabitants of the house as the angel of death came through Egypt. It was believed by the Jewish people that circumcision was the mark that would save them from the wrath of God. And how... Dare you, Paul, stand to say that this mark doesn't mean anything unless one is marked by the Spirit. The full weight of this is absorbed by the second statement, and it's shocking. His praise is not from man, but from God. Well, why does that matter so much? Who cares about the praise? This is a statement on divine control. It's a statement on divine sovereignty. God gets the praise... Because God does the saving. Or man gets no praise because man has nothing to do with bringing about his salvation. So again, hear it from Jewish ears. You fully believe that God will have wrath on sin. You're fine with that. You find comfort in it. You find comfort in the outward reality that you are a Jew. Either you're circumcised or you're a daughter of a circumcised person. You aren't threatened by the judgment of God because of the outward reality, one that you seemingly have control over. That is circumcision. Now Paul dares to claim 
that your assurance and your outward reality isn't necessary or sufficient, and what is necessary and sufficient is entirely out of your control. Now you're mad at Pastor Mark for not getting more worked up if you're that guy. And you want to give me a thumping for missing how massive this is. What really got Pastor Mark excited at the end there was, and he so clearly explained this, this is the good news. This is the gospel. And now we know why Paul stood in, in Romans 1.16 and said, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation. The gospel is the good news that God brings salvation by radically bringing sinners to believe in the name of Jesus and that God does this on His own to no credit of any man. And so chapter 3, we try to set this up for us, chapter 3 is that moment after Paul lays out to his audience this gospel. And it's as if Paul is standing there before this Jewish audience, and the Jewish audience hears him, and you can hear back a resounding, well, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. How dare you, Paul? They lay out five objections to Paul's message of good news and why he should be ashamed to even claim it. In your uh, handout, I, I put the scripture text in black. This is where you know you're in trouble when the guy gives you a, under, uh, a help guide to understanding the handout. I put, I bolded the objections. I put Paul's responses in italics. The stuff in red and in blue, that's me. So that's not inspired, all right? So if you ever read a red, level, red letter Bible, think the opposite right here, right? Red brings it down a notch. So... I, I was trying to paraphrase both the objection that's in blue and the response in red. And, and I, 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 as I did this, I pictured Paul, because what he's doing here is he's writing, he's giving us, as he's writing to the Romans, he's saying, I know you're going to say this, here's my response. I know you're going to say this. Here's my response. So I couldn't help as I'm writing the sermon to picture Paul before this audience and the person responding. That said, I'm going to preach it like that, but I want to be careful that you realize it's not a claim that this actually happened, uh, but this instead is a claim that that's how Paul is writing, as if he's responding to people. I also have to tell you, at times I get a bit dramatic, and I might actually make it sound as if these are just arguments. I, I want to make that distinction for this purpose. I honestly believe these are people who are conscious objectors. That is, Paul isn't just throwing up arguments that people don't care about. I think these are arguments that people really did care about, and Paul really did want to get them out there, but the entire time Paul is trying to get us to see how explicit the gospel is, and it's mind-blowing to his audience. Hence the objections. So, picture Paul holding up a sign of Romans 2.28 before his audience. And I think that sign could be paraphrased like this. The Gospel. God, out of His good pleasure, on His own, saves His people in spite of their inability to keep the law. So he's holding the sign, the Gospel. God, out of His good pleasure, on His own, saves His people in spite of their inability to keep His law. 
And as he does this, the Jewish audience hurls objections at him. Objection number one, verse one of chapter three. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the value of circumcision? I paraphrase this objection like this. If one is saved from the wrath of God, apart from the law, by by being reborn by the Spirit, then isn't the whole Jewish story just a waste? So they argue, Paul, if, if one is saved apart from being born of Abraham, then what is the purpose of our entire history as a people? Was that just a big experiment of God? Now, if you've been tracking Paul's argument through chapter 2 about the inadequacy of the law to save, then you might expect Paul to say back, yeah, pretty much big waste. But he doesn't. And I'm very grateful that he doesn't because he gives us something very valuable in that. They ask, what is the value then of being a Jew? Verse 2. His response. Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So is is it a waste, given the gospel message, to be born a Jew? Good gracious, no! Paul responds, For in the Jewish story, God reveals Himself. That is, my Jewish brethren, says Paul, you speak of Him as a singular God. How do you know He's a singular God? Because He revealed Himself in the law. You speak of Him as a jealous God. How do you know He's a jealous God? Because He revealed this to you in the law. You speak of Him as if He hates sin, and you actually seem to know what sin consists of. How do you know this? He revealed Himself in the law. You know how costly sin is. You have seen over and over animals have their throats slit so that there could be a sacrifice for sin. How do you know that? Because He revealed Himself in the law. You, have a, you know of your need to be saved from God's wrath. How do you know of that? Because He revealed Himself in the law. To consider all of that is a waste. It's completely wrong. It's massive mercy. Anything else and you're robbing God of very deserved praise. So, friend, if you're here, just think about this for a second. If you have any idea that there is one God who is a creator and sustainer of life, that this God is perfect in all of His ways, that He has laws which have, that we've all broken and that He will judge sin, if you just know that, you have a thousand reasons to be grateful for divine mercy. You should not know that. Except God has shown mercy to reveal that to you. My ancestors, no joke, believed in the spirits of bears and eagles until by the unmerited divine favor they were brought into proximity to the story of who? The Jews and their God named who? Yahweh and of His Son named Jesus. And only then did we learn these things. It's unamazing. It is amazing grace. Objection two. 
So imagine the pers- person articulating the first argument sits down. Okay, gotcha, Paul. Sorry about that. Now someone else stands up. And he tells Paul, well, you should be ashamed. Let me tell you why. What if some were unfaithful? This is verse 3. Does their faithfulness nullify the faithfulness of God? I've paraphrased this argument like this. If God doesn't save us because of our unfaithfulness, isn't he a promise breaker? So even if we were to grant you that we are unfaithful lawbreakers like you make us out to be, what about the fact that God has promised he will save us? Aren't you making God out to be a promise breaker? Shame on you, Paul, for making Paul God unfaithful. Paul responds. Verse 4. By no means. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Paul quotes here from David in his prayer of confession, where David acknowledges God is perfectly right to judge him. In other words... Is God unfaithful because you are judged for your unfaithfulness? No! God could, be, God could only be unjust if He failed to judge. <laughs> Even if no one is saved from His wrath, He would still be perfectly just if He judged everyone. The fact that you're unfaithful and failing to understand the depth of your sin and God's provision in His Son doesn't make God wrong for judging you. If God judges every person for their sin, He's perfectly right to do so. So person number two has a seat. Okay, gotcha. I hear you. Objection number three. The next person, verse five. Well, Paul, but if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God. What shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I mean, I'm I'm speaking here in a humanly way. And you can imagine that no sooner this person finishes, another person stands with a similar objection represented by verse 7. But if through my lie, God's truth abounds His glory, why, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? I think you can paraphrase these as this. You know, if we're so messed up that that the only way we can be saved is by rebirth, then isn't it wrong of God to have wrath on us? I mean, if we can't change how bad we are on our own, then it seems wrong for God to judge us at all. Squeezed in between these two, in verse 6, is a singular response from Paul. By no means. For then how could God judge the world? I've given two paraphrased versions of Paul's response. A first century version and a 20th century version. We'll start with Paul's response, which is a first century one. If God could only judge those who earned His favor, then nobody's getting judged. So if you think that it's unfair for God to judge anyone who could but did not earn His favor, then nobody in the world's getting judged because nobody could earn His favor. Now this is why we need a 1st century and a 20th century version. Paraphrase. 
For if Paul says to his 20th century audience, if God could only judge those who earned his favor, then nobody's getting judged. To a 20th century audience, if he says that, then the response is going to be this. Well, sweet. Nobody gets judged. I'll take two of those. Right? But not for a first century Jewish audience. This audience was convinced that judgment was needed for the rest of the world, just not them. When Paul suggests that their argument would entail nobody getting judged, then they would have been horrified. So we swing it around so we 20th century folks can hear it with the horror in our ears. I think a 20th century translation would go, or paraphrase would go something like this. Hey Paul, it seems wrong of God not to save someone if they couldn't ever earn his salvation to begin with. To which Paul would respond, Look, if God only saved people who had the ability to earn His favor, then nobody gets saved. And the 20th century crowd is horrified. Either way, Paul's point still stands. If God has to wait for people to earn His favor, then no one gets saved. Or, if God can only judge people who have had the ability to earn His favor, then nobody gets judged. The only difference is the second one is implausible as God will judge. He has to judge. It's impossible for Him not to. The first one, the idea that no one would get saved, would be incredibly sad, but Paul's already made the argument God would be perfectly just to do that. It's amazing that He doesn't. So now these two friends have a seat. And then, poor objector number four. You'll see his argument doesn't go too far. He stands up. Uh, again, you got Paul standing up there. The gospel. Got his sign. The gospel. God, out of his good pleasure, on his own, saves his people in spite of their ability to keep the law. So objector number four stands up. I don't know why, but I got this guy's like a surfer dude um, in my mind. Um, every time I was thinking of him, uh, I, was, I pictured the accent and everything. Um, so, uh, so why don't we just do evil that good may come? That's verse 8. That's not a paraphrase. That's straight out, right? Why don't we just keep on doing some evil? I paraphrase it. If, if one was saved from God's wrath apart from law-keeping, then why don't we just do evil? Then God could get even more credit for His grace. Paul gets his response in the second part of verse 8. It's, it's great. As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. Well then, Paul, why don't we just keep on doing whatever we want? Paul's response is, that's ridiculous, sit down. That's pretty much it. Actually, Paul's response is much harder, harsher. Their condemnation is just. There's actually ways of translating that response to our language, but you can, we can't use it with children present. The point stands, that's ridiculous. Of course we don't just disobey the law in order to give God more credit. Now finally, after he sits down, it's as if this wise sage, that's what I picture him, of the group finally stands up. The group gets quiet and he says, Now Paul, you need to be ashamed of yourself. Everybody knows he's getting ready to lay it out for Paul. Verse 9. What then? What then? 
Are we Jews any better off? Wait. So, so being a Jew doesn't tip the scales at all when facing God's judgment? Is that what you're trying to argue here, Paul? <laughs> Be careful. This is different than the first argument, which was what advantage has the Jew? To the first question, Paul responded, there's great value to being a Jew that God has revealed Himself. But this question's different. This is asked if Jews are any better off when facing, facing the judgment of God. Are they any closer in earning God's favor than non-Jews. Paul's response is in the second half of verse 9. You can imagine it. No, not at all. The final objector stands up. He gets right to the heart of the matter. Paul, how does being a, ben how does being a Jew benefit us when facing God's wrath over sin? Everybody has to think he's got Paul cornered. Because surely Paul is stuck. And Paul responds back with a clear and crisp, it doesn't benefit you at all. None. And now the audience is speechless. Babies can't cry. Grown men can't even groan. Everybody's wide-eyed. What? It doesn't benefit you at all. Paul, realizing he's gotten right to the core of the issue, now gives a robust response. He continues his response in verse 10. We have already charged. That would be chapters, end of chapter 1 and chapter 2. That all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. So in other words, to be clear, the whole world is in the same sinking ship. And then he goes on. This should not be news to anybody as it's clearly demonstrated all across the Scriptures. And then Paul unloads in the next few verses in a tour de force of the Old Testament. Verse 10. As it is written... Now he's speaking to Jewish audience. They know their law. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. He's quoting from Psalm 14 and Psalm 53, verse 13. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. Quoting out of Psalm 5. The venom of asps is under their lips. Psalm 140. Verse 14. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Psalm 10, verse 15, Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery in the way of peace they have not known. Combining Proverbs 1 and Isaiah 59. And then in verse 18, There is no fear of God before their eyes. Right out of Psalm 36. In these verses, Paul references, and it's interesting how he does it, both Jewish and Gentile depravity deep sinfulness. And he continues his response in verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. In other words, God's law was written to who? Jews who are apparently unable to keep the law. Now he's circling back to his objector. 
In the second part of 19, he says, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Paul says, if the Jews have no argument for innocence, then nobody in the whole world has an argument for innocence and everybody stands guilty. So the objection was, is there no benefit in being Jewish? And Paul's response is basically, it's not that being Jewish isn't good, it's that being a sinful human is so bad. Now, the audience is flabbergasted. This would be the moment I would get scared and walk out. This is the moment that Paul just steps on the accelerator. Verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Paul says, if you hear this, and you think by doing works of the law, you're going to get yourself out of this predicament, you're grossly mistaken. The law, perfect as it is, doesn't help us in the matter. It only makes it worse. Steps on the gas more. Verse, second part of verse 20. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. The law, it doesn't save us from the wrath of God. Oh no, my friend. It marks us for the wrath of God. So back to your question. Friend, are Jews any better off? No. And if Jews have bad news, there's even worse news for non-Jews. This diagnosis is clear as it is universal. All mankind stands without excuse and all mankind deserves judgment and no amount of law-keeping will be able to save anyone, says Paul. But now remember, we've got our friend Paul. He's still holding the thing. same thing got Pastor Mark all exercised. He got his sign here, Romans 2, 28. Good news! Good news! <laughs> I mean, it seems out of sorts. It's like going to the doctor and him saying, Hey, got your lab test back. Got some good news for you. You're not going to last but maybe a few more weeks. Right? That's exactly what Paul's doing. I got good news for you. The wrath of God's coming to everybody. And there's nothing we can do about it. See, I, I think there's always a moment in every gospel conversation, if the gospel is shared right like this. This is that moment for Paul. It's some moment when the person with whom you're sharing the gospel looks at you to say, Now, wait a second. I thought you had good news. This does not feel very good. His audience had no doubt that they were lawbreakers. But they could not imagine the situation was so bad that no amount of law keeping would right the scales. And if you hear this and go, yeah, that's an interesting idea. Hmm, Paul had to share with Jews like that. I don't even know one Jew, huh? This is exactly the way to share the gospel to biblical, half-literate, nominal, southern Christianity. Yes, you know that you're a lawbreaker, but I am telling you, 
There is no amount of law keeping that's getting you out of this mess. There's got to be that very tense moment where somebody goes, uh-oh. And you go, yes. Yes. It's really rough. And then, like a masterful surgeon, Paul goes to Romans 2, 21 and 22. And it is so refreshing. Verse 21, But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So how do we have any good news if God is going to judge all the lawbreakers and we're all lawbreakers? Only if He offers a way to be right with God outside of the law. Notice He doesn't toss the law aside. There's nothing wrong with the law. But He's going to offer a way to be right with God outside of your own law keeping. How? Well, He says that rightness with God comes apart from law. This thing has been talked about all throughout the prophets, he says, this way of being right with God outside the law, and now it's being manifested. Well, what is it? It is the gospel for which Paul is unashamed. It is the good news that rightness of God might now be had through faith for those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah. So it is a rightness of God found not through works of the law, but through faith in another, another law keeper, a perfect law keeper. This is why Christians talk about our belief in alien righteousness. By alien righteousness, we don't mean super moral extraterrestrial creatures. When we speak of alien righteousness, it is a righteousness that's not mine. It's somebody else's righteousness. That's Jesus Christ. That's the rightness to be had outside of the law through faith. In Jesus. So Paul's audience found his gospel shameful because they believed in a law keeping that could make them right with God on their own standing. And Paul says it's far from accurate, is they're in worse shape than they could ever imagine. And then he says there's good news. Out of God's good pleasure, he's offered a right standing with God is not dependent on our works, but wholly banks on one of their own brethren. A fellow Jew, which many of them might have even shaken hands with. His name is Jesus. He was from Nazareth. And he is the Son of God. And in him, if you place your faith, you will be saved. This is the gospel that they think Paul should be ashamed of. And it's the gospel Paul says, I am not ashamed of it. In it is the power of God and God alone to save. If we're to cherish it, then we must let it diagnose us as guilty as charged. It leaves no room at all for boasting. It leaves us utterly dependent on Jesus. 
And if we let it fall on us, like it's fallen on Paul, it's impossible to go unshared. It makes no sense to get this and not share it. And so we're going to share with people, not because we feel like we can come back and get a notch on our belt, but because it is unbelievable. When we consider the mercy of God, the grace of God, the love of God in the Gospel, we should be left blown away. It's interesting, because if you hear it right, it actually feels a little bit shameful, doesn't it? I mean, when it rightly diagnoses you, that's pretty messed up. How can Paul be so unashamed? I think he's unashamed because he realizes as deep and messed up as the gospel shows him to be, it shows God as a thousand times more merciful. And he looks at that and says, covered, completely unashamed. It's got nothing to do with me, and I'm unashamed of that. I think as we close, I can really think of no better fitting song than His mercy is more. Our sins, they are many. That's exactly what the Gospel says. Our sins, they are many. But the amazing truth of the Gospel is that His mercy is indeed more. Let me pray and we'll sing together.